The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. It is great to be with you today. According to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the way we see our work can very well indicate the health of our eyesight. This is week three of taking God to work. About a year ago, as I've mentioned, I read a book um, that written by Dr. Dan Boone that talked about this, and I was just struck by how important that is for Christians to think about the nature of our faith at the workplace, because according to statistics, we spend about one-third of our life at work. It's the greatest time commitment of the entirety of our time on earth, and therefore it's very important that we ask the question, what will I do for a living. And so it doesn't matter what we do, whether it's we look at, under a microscope at things for a living or sell artificial heart valves or we coach students or crunch numbers or bake bread or drive trucks. We build buildings in the hands of God for people of faith. I believe our work can be purposeful, enjoyable. It can be influential. And for many of us, it can become the kind of primary location of our call to live as a disciple in the world. And this is not just a question for discerning young people who might be in high school or vocational school or college who are thinking about their career. Many of you may have considered about 20 years into your career, do I want to do this forever? And you decide to make a change to a different field or you go back to school. Even as you're closing out the last quarter of your retire or your career and heading towards retirement, you may begin to ask the question, what do I want to do with my time while I have this skill set and experience and now available time? We want to do things that are meaningful and enjoyable. And in week one, I acknowledge that most of our view of work in the world is shaped by a biblical message, but it's not the original biblical message. It's shaped by the story we hear in Genesis chapter 3, when human beings rebel against God, and one of the consequences is that their toil, their work, is going to be hard, and it'll cause them by the sweat of their brow to produce a living because they've attempted to be gods themselves. And so we end up with great classic songs like this one, I've been working in this factory now for now on 15 years. All this time I watched my woman drown in a pool of tears. And I've seen a lot of good folk die that had a lot of bills to pay. I'd give the shirt right off my back if I had the guts to say. And then halfway through the chorus, you better not try to stand in my way as I'm walking out the door, take this job and I ain't working here no more. Johnny Paycheck made that popular back in 1981. Let me suggest to you that that's the way most of us think about work. It really is. It is burdensome. And if we really had the freedom to speak our mind without any of the financial consequences to our lives, some of us would absolutely say, take this job and shove it. But that's not the way the Bible starts talking about work. That's not God's intention. God's intention is not in Genesis 3, but in Genesis 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, rather than Genesis 3, we see God gives humanity purpose and provision by placing the human in the garden as God's representative. Therefore, for people of faith, that should be the story that we're trying to live. A work is a cooperative partnership with God, and God is the one that can give it purpose and meaning. Today we move to some of the teachings of Jesus about work. He has a lot to say about work. Many of His metaphors have to do with farming and finances and people who are going to work. Well. Here, we hear Jesus sharing a story, a parable, with His disciples toward the end of His ministry. It's all the way into Matthew chapter 25. Now, Jesus has concluded His three years of ministry up in the northern region of Galilee, and He's moved south and entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. 
On Thursday night, he will gather at the Passover meal with his disciples. And in between that Sunday when he enters and that Thursday after the dinner he is arrested, there's a lot that takes place. And in Matthew's gospel, it's like one confrontation after another with Jesus stepping up to the temple and critiquing the religious leaders whose hearts were not in the right place, whose passions and motives had gone awry. And they begin to get angry. And Jesus, after one of these confrontations, withdraws with His disciples and tells this story. I've asked Elijah to come forward and read for us. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who was leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. To one he gave five valuable coins, and to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. He gave to each servant according to that servant's ability. Then he left on his journey. After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two valuable coins gained two more. But the servant who had received the one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five valuable coins came forward with five additional coins. He said, Master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained five more. His master replied, Excellent. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come, celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two valuable coins. Look, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come, celebrate with me. Now the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid. And I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. His master replied, You evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown, and that I gather crops where I haven't spread seed. In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers, so that when I returned, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin, and give it to the one who has ten coins. Those who have much will receive more, and they will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. Now take the worthless servant and throw him out into the farthest darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. This is my very own Ed McMahon right here. Great reading voice. Thank you, Elijah. You know, when you read a story like this from Jesus, it's okay if at first you walk away saying, what exactly was he trying to teach me in that? Because the New Testament oftentimes does not peel back the layers of thinking in the characters' minds or the motives of the heart. We simply judge them by what happens in the story. And when this story begins, we're not given any motivations about why the master gives the talents, the valuable coins to the servants and why they were motivated to respond with them in the different ways that they did. We only learn a little bit more about it when we see the response at the end once the master comes home. 
In verse 19, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five valuable coins came forward with five additional coins. He said, Master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained five more. And the master replied, Excellent. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in, large, in charge of much. Come celebrate with me. I love when I read that, the childlike pride that's in the voice and the mannerism of the servant. He's like, look what I did. You gave me something and I feel like I did a good job and I want to return it to you and show you the progress that I made with these coins. And listen to the joy of the master's response. He's proud too. He's very pleased. In fact, He's so pleased that he not only affirms what the man has done, but he says, I'm going to give you even more responsibility and I want to invite you to a party to come and spend time in fellowship with me. That's the story of the one who gave, had five and was given five more. And the same exact story for the one who was given two and returned two additional coins. But not for the third servant. His response is radically different. His reply to the master is radically different. Verse 24, Now the one who'd received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid. And I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. Totally opposite response from the first two. He knew the master to be a hard man, a harsh man, a demanding, exacting man. The master almost seems a little bit caught off guard that there's been kind of a personal attack against his character. Listen, he gets angry. His master replied in verse 26, You evil and lazy servant, you knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown? That I gather crops where I haven't spread seed? In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers. So, that's, so that when I return, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take him with the valuable coin and give it to the one who has ten coins. Those who have much will receive more, and they will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even the little they have will be taken away from them. Now take the worthless servant and throw him into the farthest darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth." Harsh words from Jesus. Consequential actions for the third servant. There's a presumption here that while the first two are invited into deeper intimacy of relationship with God, the third, because there was not a relationship with God, is cast even further away. We're not given any explicit reason in the story why the third servant responds the way that he does so differently than the first two. And if you read it and you walk away with kind of these ideas about God and humanity's response, I don't blame you. You could read that for the first time and walk away saying, well, I guess God gives different kinds of talents to different kinds of people, but we better make the most of them. Or God expects us to use our talents for God's service, and if we don't, God's going to get angry with us. Or you better make sure you don't get on God's bad side because there are permanent, eternal consequences. People are just cast out. And if you've got a problem grinding your teeth, it's only going to get worse in all of eternity. I understand that reading. And that's why we have to understand that when Jesus tells this story in Matthew 25, 
He's relying on His disciples, remembering a clue He's given to them 19 chapters earlier. This is Jorge Coco's rendering of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, earlier in His ministry, alongside the seashore of the Sea of Galilee, walks up a hillside. He sits down as like a rabbi with authority, and the crowds gather around them, and He begins to teach and provides the most consequential central teaching of His entire ministry, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in chapter 6, He gives this little metaphor, this little teaching that we open worship with reading responsibly. Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is a picture of the human eye. One of the most elaborate, incredible features of the human body. Human eyes are composed of over two million working parts. Each eyeball, two million. The eye can distinguish 2.7 million colors and 500 shades of gray, more than 50 shades of gray. Shame on you. The retina in the human eye has 120 million rods and 8 million cones. This is the way it works. Light comes streaming in through the pupil. It strikes the retina and it generates an electrical impulse which is carried via the optic nerve to your brain. And that's what creates the images that we interpret visually. The eye for us having the benefit of this point in history with everything we understand about science and medicine, is that the eye is the receptacle of light. But in Jesus' day, they understood the human eye a little bit differently. They understood the eye was not only the receptacle of light, but the source of light. They thought the eye actually projected light, and that enabled it to observe the physical world. I was trying to think about like how would they have envisioned the eye, and I remembered when I was a child the old Pink Panther cartoons, and whenever he would walk into a dark room with a flashlight, it looked kind of like this. There was a dark room, and the beam of light was carefully defined so that on that beam, wherever it was directed, is the only place that light would be. That's a metaphor for how they understood the human eye in the first century. They thought the eye let out light, and that's what guides behavior. In other words, one's actions reveals inner commitments. What Jesus is calling our eyes, I believe we would call our perspective. Perspective. Perspective changes everything. When I was 13 years old, I went through a phase in my eighth grade year, kind of an unexplainable phase of anger. Several months, just mad angsty in that weird time of moving from the world of a child and into the future world of an adult, and I had a really bad attitude. My teachers at school all had it out for me. I followed their instructions if they gave them. They were usually very, very poor. They wouldn't follow through on their end of the arrangement, and therefore my decreasing GPA was their fault. It's the way I saw it. I seemed to always during this, this period have one social enemy, one person I could use as kind of a scapegoat or a whipping boy. And I was kind of just walking around with a chip on my shoulder, waiting for them to look at me the wrong way or say something smart to me. And who got the person, a group of people that got the worst of it, though, were my parents. Now, look, they were dumb. They didn't know anything, okay? But I still mistreated them and disrespected them. 
I had a short fuse. I would roll my eyes, complain, speak through my teeth, storm off, slam doors, you name it. If I did follow their instruction, it was to the bare minimum, certainly not the spirit of what they asked me to do. They did the best they could in trying to deal with this new creature they had on their hands. My mother was in graduate school and she went to a leadership conference and after she came home, she walked into my room and said, Nathan, I've got a gift for you. I said, okay, and she handed me a book. It was called The Success Journey by John Maxwell, a leadership guru she had heard at the conference. He had talked about some principles in the book. He talked about how it could be a valuable resource for young people. And so she'd bought the book for me. She said, I just thought that you might appreciate some of what he's talking about in this book because he encourages not just to think about the things that you're facing, but the way that you view them. Thanks. Get out, you know. And when she turned and left my room, I opened it up and began to flip through it, and she had gone to get his signature and get the book written to me after the conference. And on the inside flap, it said, To Nathan, remember, your attitude determines your altitude. John Maxwell. Still have that book. What was my mother saying? You know, maybe you need to look inward, son. Because the way that you're viewing the world as adversarial, as enemies, as problems, maybe that's more a reflection of what's inside of you than the circumstances outside of you. And I think that might be what Jesus is getting at when He says the eye is the lamp of the body. There's a projection of your internal state onto the external world. And if that light in you is darkness, He says, then how deep is the darkness. Is there any greater problem than we can face than one we have inside of us that we cannot recognize? Apply that short little teaching from Matthew 6, 19 chapters later to Matthew 25, and what do you get? You return to that parable, and what you get is a story about a master who entrusts treasure to three servants. You see, what this text said was valuable coins. In some of your Bibles, it would say a talent. And that doesn't have to do with the ability to draw something well or sing well or crunch numbers. A talent was equal to 15 years of a working person's wage. Think about that. Not a yearly salary, not a paycheck. 15 cumulative years of work for an average working person. So not many people work for the federal minimum wage anymore in terms of $7.25 an hour. But if I just took that number and multiplied it times 40, times 52, times 15, I came up with $226,000 for one talent. In the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus, historians estimate that as much as 40% of the entire empire was comprised comprised by people who were either in voluntary or involuntary servitude or slavery. It's a radically different way that the world worked there than it does in the 21st century. And masters in the first century who had slaves and servants treated them like property. In fact, we find in some of the writings surrounding the Scripture that a master was forbidden to look their servant in the eye because the servant was not worthy of that. And in this story, the master says, here's 200 and some odd thousand dollars for you. Here's 400 and some odd thousand dollars for you. Here's over a million dollars for you. I'm going on a trip. And then I'll come back. 
What picture does that paint of the master? One that would have been unheard of and unrecognizable in a first century world. That's not how you treat people. When the man comes back, we're given further insight into his character. He's proud of those who have put the resources to work. He affirms them and says, come and celebrate with me. Come eat with me. Come have a party with me. Fellowship with me. Something that slaves would have never been invited to do until the third one comes. And so, the man looks at his master and says, I know you to be a hard man. You harvest grains you haven't grown. You gather crops you didn't, didn't spread the seed for. I was afraid of you. So I hid my valuable coin in the ground here. You have what is yours. The quality of this servant's effort and work was directly tied to the view that servant had of the master in the story. And did you hear what his perspective was marked by? Anger, ingratitude, and fear. You're a harsh man. wonder if you've ever thought about your work with anger and gratitude and fear. That's not who God was in the story. That's who the servant sees. And the two servants versus the last one have radically different perspectives on who the master is, the relationship they have with the master, and therefore the quality of their work because their viewpoint is different because the eye is the lamp of the body, according to Jesus. Look, I know that sometimes your boss can be a demanding jerk. Sometimes your coworkers are gossipy and toxic. Maybe you're not compensated fairly or your health insurance plan or retirement plan is, it just stinks and the hours are unreasonable. But I think you would agree with me. The primary determining factor on how we experience our work is our perspective on that work. And let me tell you something. If we're disciples, if we have a daily walking relationship with Jesus Christ, if we have that, that radically transforms the way that we view our work. And we can live with a sense of hopefulness, meaning, purpose, and even contentment that transcends those other factors I mentioned earlier because the eye is the lamp of the body. The hardest working person that I know is Penny Carden, my mother. When I was in elementary school, she went back to college and finished out her degree in mathematics education. When I was in middle school, while raising five kids, by the way, one of which was awful, um, went back to school and got her master's degree. And then in high school, she went back and got her doctorate. And she began teaching in the public school system and then adjunct professor at a university. And by the time she retired this past summer, she had retired as a full professor at Trevecca Nazarene University in Nashville. And um, I was so pleased to learn back in March that she had been selected the year of her retirement to receive the Graduate um, Teaching Excellence Award for, for the faculty. And I was so proud of her uh, receiving that award. That was on March the 27th. 
I decided, you know what, I'm going to drive up and surprise her at the reception that night. And so I was able to take Henry and Amelia. And you see how big my mom is smiling there? Um, it's because her favorite son surprised her. And um, my older brother and younger sister were there along with my dad. And we're so proud of her for all of her hard work and how much she cares about what she does. But that was March 27th. And that day, a heavy cloud descended upon that community and our country. At the benediction of the faculty event that night where they were honoring the recipients, the university president, Dr. Dan Boone, who coincidentally is the author of the book that I read about a year ago about taking God to work. Dr. Dan Boone stepped forth to offer a blessing and benediction to conclude the evening. And he said, it's a heavy day in our Nashville community because that was the day that the Covenant School, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Green Hills, experienced the horror of a deadly shooting. And children and adults lost their life. Everybody in our country, I think, was feeling the heaviness of another school shooting. But what I didn't know, what Dr. Boone said is, I'm reminded today that our work as educators matters. And the work of our students who are trained here, it matters. Because we are sending them out to serve their neighbor on the front lines of where good meets evil. They're doing the work of God. And today, one of our own, Catherine Kuntz, a graduate of the education program and the headmaster of Covenant Presbyterian School, gave her life trying to protect her students. And he said, we're grieving as a city, we're grieving as an academic community. And I, I could see some faculty reaching up to dry their eyes. It was a very quiet room. He said, but I trust that in the midst of unimaginably frightening events, that the promise that Jesus made to his disciple was true with Catherine, that he would be with her and us always, even until the end of the world. So as we prepare to go forth from this place, he said, we can be confident in the knowledge that we are loved and accompanied by the God who sends us. And that room was very quiet. And what I noticed within my own heart as I took in that moment, heard those words, was that it would be very understandable to respond on a day like that with anger, with despair, with bitterness that these events had taken place. But instead, I felt a sense of inspiration because the God that He was describing that we are called to serve in our work is a God who has revealed compassion and unmeasurable kindness, unmeasurable kindness to us and promised to walk with us in every place that we go. Brothers and sisters, next time you are feeling burnout, angry, bitter, unappreciated, yes, there may be issues that need to be addressed. But if we're disciples of Jesus, I want to encourage you, may the first response,